0: A pandemic of so-called Spanish flu is estimated to have killed between 50 and 100 million people across the globe during 1918 and 1919. Here in the West Midlands, families were also devastated and daily life came to a halt. Schools and cinemas were closed, bodies lay unburied and there was a shortage of coffins, while medical services were overwhelmed. Now, for the first time, the full extent of the crisis in the region has been revealed in research conducted by the University of Worcester and the George Marshall Medical Museum. The team talked to History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs.
1: In Worcestershire and the surrounding counties, the University of Worcester and the George Marshall Medical Museum has been conducting a fascinating piece of research into the effect of the pandemic of Spanish flu that hit the world and hit this region between 1918 and 1921. That project has been led by Professor Maggie Andrews at the University of Worcester, and I'm very grateful to her for joining us today to tell us about the project. We're also joined by Emma Edwards, also from the University of Worcester, a scientist and virologist who has looked into the actual pathogens, the actual viruses that are causing this disease and why it has differed from the flu epidemics that we get today. And we're also finally joined by Louise Price from the George Marshall Medical Museum, who has been an integral part of this research programme. Maggie, this pandemic came to Britain in 1918. We were still at war. What
2: was the effect of this epidemic, this pandemic? Large numbers of people are ill. Over the period of time of 1918 to 1919 over a quarter of a million people die. War production is seriously disrupted. And I think also there's a massive sense of sort of malaise, although it's not caused by the war, there is a feeling that this is yet another horrendous thing that's happening. And that's the case in the first wave of flu which you get in the summer, then it goes away and you get a much more serious flu, which we have from basically October through to Christmas, a lot more fatalities. And a lot of problems in dealing with those fatalities because of the number of people who are tied up with the war, be it doctors or vicars or gravediggers, all of them have been removed from the local community to fight the war. And then it eases off again and we get another big phase in spring of 1919. And unusually, in Birmingham, there is a strong sense that in 1920 also there is another wave of this.
1: Emma, I know there's a lot of debate about just how many people died. How many of them do you think there were?
3: That's a very difficult question. There's two different ways to estimate the death toll. So you can look at the medical reports at the time. You can try and work out what each individual person has died of and then try and extrapolate that to a global level. The Centre for Disease Control in Atlanta, which tends to collate these sort of statistics, estimates there were 50 million people who died globally of flu. But there are other estimates of up to 100 million. But there's another way of estimating the global deaths, which is taking the total death rate, which is everybody who's died from everything, and looking for peaks. And we see a peak for the three waves of Spanish influenza. And if we add up those peaks globally, it looks to be more like 15, 20 million people who've died of the flu.
1: Louise, how many people do you estimate died here in Worcestershire?
3: From all three waves of the flu,
4: we know that 1,663 residents died.
1: And how does that compare with its seriousness in Birmingham, for instance?
4: In Birmingham, the figures
2: look much worse. And, you know, you've got points in November of 1918 when there's nearly 250 dying a week. But it is a much more densely populated city. I mean, I think the proportions are fairly similar. In people's minds at the time, there was this sense that it was much more dangerous to be, you were more likely to die in an urban area than a rural. But I don't think there is
3: any indication of that.
1: Emma, what made this particular virus so dangerous?
3: The virus that caused this flu has actually been identified from victims who are buried in permafrost in Alaska. So researchers have collected samples of its genetic material, they have recreated the virus in its entirety, and they've tested it for how it's causing all the damage. So this virus is much better at replicating than our standard flu that we get seasonally. It causes much more damage within lung tissues. It can also move from the lung tissues into other tissues, such as the central nervous system. It can replicate there. So normally, our seasonal influenza is limited to the upper airways, the nose, the back of the throat. But this virus was particularly good at getting into the rest of the person's body and replicating there and causing damage. And what
1: symptoms did it cause in an infected person?
3: It was much more severe than seasonal flu. So it wasn't just the headache, the aches, the pains, the lethargy. It caused a really severe cough, which got worse and worse, often producing a foamy sort of bloody productive cough. One of the most severe symptoms that people often got was something called a heliotrope cyanosis and it meant basically that the person turned a a purplish bluish colour and if the doctors saw that they knew there was a 95% chance that person was going to die and what caused that was the lungs started to leak fluid into the small air spaces which meant that the person couldn't absorb any oxygen so they got progressively bluer and bluer Until they died.
1: The whole of the population of Britain and of uh, the West Midlands must have been affected by this pandemic. But were there some groups who were particularly at risk?
3: There were. In seasonal flu, the people who are most affected are the very young, because their immune response is quite immature, and the very elderly who have experienced that many pathogens, that many germs and viruses over their lifetimes, that their ability to fight new infections is compromised. But the 1918 pandemic was different. It wasn't just affecting the very young and the very old. It was affecting young adults, or what we'd consider to be a young adult now. So the peak age of death from this influenza was at just 28 So these were meant to be the strongest, fittest people. One of the things that's most distinct is the way that the fatalities
2: were amongst that same group of the population who have been so hugely involved in the war. And I think this is very, very poignant. You see people who've gone to war and their wives have died when they're away. You see people who've come home from the end of war and within a couple of weeks the dead of flu. You see families where they've lost two or three sons to the war and then they lose their daughter to the Spanish flu. There's a lost generation from the Spanish flu, you know, with over a quarter of a million dying in this country, just as there is a lost generation in terms of sort of eight hundred and fifty thousand who die in the combative service in the First World War. And Maggie,
1: what was the response of people when this pandemic first struck?
2: I think the response was very different in the different ways. So in the first one, in the summer of 1918, the country is focused on war and winning the war. So they almost sort of are quite frivolous about it. They don't take it too seriously. They're like stay home, be sensible, don't infect everybody else, and you know, you'll know you be better in a couple of days, it'll all be just fine. And they're always throughout 1918, right until November, they're downplaying it, it's not very serious, it's not a problem, it's past its peak, it's always past its peak. However many people are dying, they keep claiming it's past its peak. Where they get into a state really of anxiety and panic is when it hits in October, November. At this point in time, They know the war is nearly over or won. And I think the censorship comes off a little bit in some of the sort of national papers and people turn their mind to something else that's happening rather than just what's happening in in the fighting. And the levels of anxiety and panic begin to grow. And I think also because, you know, it's wave after wave. So they're like, we've been here before. This is happening again. We know people are going to die. And you get quite a level of sort of anxiety hysteria in various different ways, emerging, particularly in that wave.
1: And here in Worcestershire, what was the response?
4: The Medical Officer of Health is asking people to keep their rooms well ventilated, to get rid of those wartime blackout curtains so we can have air into spaces. The local newspapers reporting that please can you stop buying Bovril because people don't have Bovril and people need Bovril. Yeah. Goggle with antiseptics, do everything you can with antiseptics, wipe your walls with it, breathe it. Um, none of it is going to help, unfortunately. <laughs>
1: So this is now known as the Spanish flu epidemic. Does this mean it came from Spain?
3: No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Current thinking is that it first originated in a camp in the southern half of the USA. In Kansas, yeah. So that was the first case, apparently, but there are reports from a year before of similar sort of symptoms showing up. Without modern techniques to identify the specific virus, it's very difficult to say where it first came from.
1: So Maggie, why is it called the Spanish flu then?
2: It was called the Spanish flu because Spain was a neutral country. It didn't have the same level of censorship as other countries in Europe. And so therefore they started to talk about This flu epidemic, particularly when members of the government, members of the royal family have the flu. And so there's an assumption that maybe that's where it started. I have to say that as the time goes on, it gets wrapped up in so many different odd excuses as to where it came from. So the link between germs and Germany means that lots of people are convinced it's come from the Germans. And they talk about it as the German plague, and then maybe it's because the Germans are using gas, or maybe it's because of the people in the trenches. So they blame all sorts of different people. The Germans actually blame the Chinese Labour Corps that the British are using behind the lines. So everybody is blaming everybody else. The Spanish blame the Portuguese.
1: You mentioned earlier that the war was still being fought when this really started to take hold. How did it affect the conduct of the actual war in the trenches or in the fields of Belgium?
2: It did have an effect in terms of both sides would have soldiers ill at certain points of time. So there was that significant effect there. It had an effect in terms of the difficulties it caused you know, in coal mines and factories in this country trying to produce things. But I think the effect there was on the home front was absolutely monumental because all the priority had been on men involved in war work. There were not enough doctors left. There were not enough grave diggers left. There were not enough undertakers left. There were not enough vicars left to look after a pandemic like this. There were not enough nurses left. And so the result on the home front was actually that the care that people should have received, whether it is a doctor coming to visit you, being able to get a medicine when you went to the chemist, get a priest out if you were ill, or if you died, being able to be buried and, again, finding a priest to do a funeral. Those things really get into difficulty. So the home front really is suffering as a result of the prioritisation of the war effort.
1: And in... 1918, when the armistice was declared, you have a large number of troops coming home to the West Midlands. Did they bring the flu with them, or was it already here?
2: No, it was very much already here. I mean, there is a very strong sense that the movement of people that you get in wartime, and that's about troops... That's about refugees, that's about migrant labor, all these different groups, and and just ordinary people going to work in factories in a different place from where they are. That movement certainly moves the virus around very efficiently. They're all very good carriers. You know, you can see a lot of progress from where it comes into Britain, London, and then the main railway lines that go out to Nottingham to Birmingham are really where suddenly it comes. And in Worcestershire, it's very significant that there is an awful lot of it around the Evesham Vale which is where you've got some 15 railway stations, you've got people coming in and out, you've got lots of POWs in camps and what have you. All of that sort of stuff moves it around and shifts it about, but it is as significantly here as it is on the Western Front by the time you hit 1918 and the Armistice. What also becomes very problematic is, of course, one of the issues is it is an armistice. The war doesn't end until 1919 and they don't release people very quickly from the armed forces, and particularly they don't release the ones who could come back to Britain and help the coffin makers, the funeral directors, the doctors, the nurses who are so much needed in this country to look after things.
1: So when did it first really catch the public eye here
2: in Worcestershire? The last week in June in 1918 is when suddenly you find it across the local newspapers, They start talking about letters from men at the front. They start talking about factories which have had to close or send literally hundreds of people home because they've got the flu. They start talking about the need to close schools because they're anxious about it and the number of children or teachers who are off ill. And also about the beginnings of the difficulties that doctors are having. So the last week in June, suddenly people become aware that there is a flu virus, as we would call it, around but they don't think it's serious. Remember, they've had these sorts of things before. They're aware in most of them's minds they can remember the Russian flu epidemic in the 1890s, so they don't think it's going to be a big deal. They just think this is something that happens. Two or three days, people get better, it'll all just be fine.
1: As time moved on, how did authorities react here in the West Midlands?
4: So coming to October-November time in 1918, they have to. We have nurses themselves becoming patients with influenza. We have the British Medical Association local branch of Worcestershire saying that they need the doctors to be returned back to Worcestershire so they can see their patients. We have patients dying without having even seen a doctor. So the medical communities within our authorities have to react in 1918 when we get to October-November.
2: You've also got a significant movement, I suppose, within the area to clamp down on a number of places that they see the illness being spread so they begin to get very anxious interestingly about theaters about cinemas about football matches but anywhere and schools about these places where they see you know people swapping what they consider to be germs causing the illness. So some cinemas are closed, children are stopped from going to cinemas, soldiers are stopped from going to cinemas in some places. Cinemas have to have sort of ventilation spaces between one showing of a film and another. So they begin to take action on those sorts of things and a lot of schools are closed, even though when we look at the statistics now we can see that children were not dying in as big a quantity as those who are a bit older, there was the sense, perhaps not unreasonably, that children would spread the disease. They're not that healthy always. I'm not that sort of careful about sneezing and things. So a lot of schools closed for quite long periods of time. So the authorities begin to curtail activities that they think will spread the disease, but not some activities. So there's no mention of the idea, for instance, that maybe we should close churches because people are all getting together there. It is those things which I suppose you would associate with working-class culture, which they seem to sort of really hone down on and get quite worked up about and prevent happening.
1: And as we moved into 1919, there was another peak, another wave. Was that worse or less serious than the first 1918 waves?
3: The death rate in the third wave was intermediate to the other two. The October-November wave was the most severe, had the highest death rate. But over the course of the three waves, it's been estimated that one third of the world's population was infected by this virus.
2: Always, it's not quite even where it's happening, if that makes sense. So there are some parts of the West Midlands which aren't particularly badly hit in 1919. So Coventry is not as badly hit by any means as it had been previously. There are some that are getting it one month, and others getting it another, if that makes sense. So it's almost over by the end of November in 1918, in some parts, so in parts of Stoke-on-Trent. But then it's coming with a vengeance in parts of Birmingham, still on into November and December. And as we say, in 1919, Birmingham feels it has another wave. And Herefordshire, which didn't feel it had very much of it, in the first wave, we're healthy here, it's nice and rural, we're not convinced we've got flu. By 1919 in Herefordshire, they're absolutely aware that they have a real problem with influenza.
1: So the obvious question is why?
2: Part of the difference is to do with mobility of people. Part of the difference is to do with the awareness and the attitudes of the medical officers of health. So are they looking for it? The medical officer of health in Birmingham is absolutely preoccupied by it. (laughs) It dominates his thinking. He's writing to governments. He's absolutely fixated. Now, in his mind, it is tied up with the unhealthy slum housing of Birmingham, the worst of the poverty-stricken back-to-backs. So he's really focused on it in Herefordshire, they're pretty relaxed. It's quite healthy here. We don't consider it so bad. In Worcestershire, it's a sort of mixture. You know, you've got people saying, well, it's only in, in sort of poor areas and it's only in areas of overcrowding. And then other people say, but all these market gardeners in Batsey are going down with it massively. It's not that. It's actually happening all over the place.
1: What in Worcestershire did people do to try and prevent the flu coming to their house or to their village?
4: Maggie's talked a little bit about you know trying to stay away from other people that may have the flu that you could take it back home with you. We've also talked a little bit about those chemists and pharmacists who are trying to sell you preventative measures based on not a lot of facts. So you might have something with an antiseptic quality to it that you could take home and breathe in, put in a pastille burner or a coal tar vaporizer, something like that. Probably the coal soap was the best thing you could have in your house, depending on whether you've got access to a nurse or whether you've just have the basics of a a normal home. You might have children and fathers looking after a mother who's gone down just with a hot water bottle and a bar of soap, so your wealth may have an impact on whether or not you died from it. If you've got no access to a a nurse or a doctor, then you're reliant on a bar of soap and maybe a neighbour coming over to help while you're lying in bed. So
1: there was a class element to your prognosis?
4: Definitely, yes, I think so. And I think that's why we get so many stories of those large families where you've got two or three children where you're trying to bury them all at the same time and then mother and father aren't there because they've gone down with the flu or they're looking after someone at home.
1: And you talk about burying children. Burial was a problem, was it not? Because there was a shortage of grave diggers.
2: Burial was a huge problem. Interestingly, in April 1918... The funeral directors in Birmingham and in Coventry are complaining to the military tribunals, please don't take any more of our trained people away because we're doing a public service and there will be an epidemic if you keep taking out the gravediggers and the funeral directors. Gravediggers are, by definition, quite sort of fit, healthy young men in just the sort they want to use for the armed forces. And so there is a massive, massive shortage and they cannot bury them fast enough. In fact, in October, November, it becomes a massive crisis in Birmingham and in Coventry particularly, whereby... It's so bad that there are people waiting two and three weeks to be buried. There are stories of, you know, the road up to the municipal graveyard in Coventry, there are just rows and rows and rows of people in queues to go and bury one member of the family after another. Eventually, particularly after the armistice, they have to bring in the military to actually help with the burial. They appeal to volunteers to provide their horses and their vehicles to help transport the dead. They also begin a process of shifting cultures. Of death and death and funerals is very, very important to the culture of Edwardian and early 20th century Britain. It's about showing your worth in life, it's about showing your respectability. And so people care desperately about how they manage a funeral. But with the flu, this cannot work. So, you know, the funeral directors are saying, look, you're going to have to stop having polished coffins. We haven't got the time for that. You're going to have to have two horses, not four horses. We can't provide you with the shutters or the curtains to black out your windows. The practice of holding a funeral, maybe on a Friday or a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon, so that people at work can go to it, that goes because they're so short, they have to take any slot they can. And then there is the huge cost of funerals, which is traumatic beyond belief. So we have people's fears of a pauper's funeral. People take out funeral insurance and resolutely pay this, but the companies are in difficulty trying to pay it. Nationally, the Prudential talks in November of 1918 about how the payouts they're having to give are much worse for funerals and for deaths than they were in the worst part of the war. They can't keep up with it. So all around, there is this sort of financial crisis, and people burying family members in the same coffin, trying to cut down the costs of funeral burying more than one person at one time, or even though they might have fought in the war, even though they've maybe they've lost their husband in the war, they end up having a pauper's funeral because the money is not there to pay for it. And the charities that normally would have helped are so hard pressed for cash.
1: Coming to the end of the epidemic here in Britain, and particularly here in the West Midlands, how quickly did it end?
2: Over the summer months of 1919, it does slowly phase out and differently in different places. But people don't know, after they've had three waves of it, they don't know whether it's coming again. You know That anxiety is still there for quite a while afterwards. So by the time you've got to sort of August, when a lot of the peace celebrations are. By that point in time, you get a sense that people are breathing a sigh of relief, though I think with an anxiety of what's coming their way in winter. Birmingham is absolutely convinced it has another blip in 1920. The medical officer of health there is quite convinced. Whether it was or not, it would need, you know, a scientist to find the appropriate dead person, dig them up and have a go at them. But um, he's completely convinced it is. In the decade
1: that followed, was there any strong memory of the epidemic, or did it disappear behind the whole of the post-war celebrations and redevelopment?
4: For our research, we've definitely had to revisit newspapers to get any sense of people even thinking about it afterwards. We've had very little public memory at all within our research. In Europe, even though it's not
2: caused by the war, it's all tied up with the memory of the war and the disaster and the horrors and the death that comes about as a result of that, and remember, you know, lots of troops die of disease in the First World War, as well as you know, people on the home front with flu. So, it's remembered in that way. It's just seen as another part of the Torah. Emma, looking
1: to the future, what's the risk of a new virus occurring today?
3: But the risk of a similar pandemic happening again is really quite high. This virus mutates really rapidly. It changes all the time. It can also exchange parts of its genetic material with those of bird viruses and pig viruses, which is why we hear about swine flu and bird flu. And because that genetic material has come from a different animal, no human has any immunity to it and the chances of that happening hasn't reduced at all.
1: And how much better would we be at coping with it or wouldn't we?
3: I think in the Western world, we'd have a pretty good chance of coping with it better than they did in 1918. So we have antiviral drugs, we have vaccines, which can be effective if we know what strain of virus is coming. But the rest of the world is no better prepared than they were in 1918. So our best hope globally is to develop a vaccine that targets all strains of influenza virus. If we could design a vaccine against a bit that doesn't change in the virus, then we've got a good chance of protecting the whole world from it.
1: So should I sleep easy tonight or should I be lying awake worrying?
3: Considering where you live and the state of the healthcare system in this country, you're a much better place than they were in 1918 good
0: to know. Yeah. You can read more in Bovril, Whiskey and Gravediggers, The Spanish Flu Pandemic Comes to the West Midlands. A fascinating new book by Maggie Andrews and Emma Edwards, published by History West Midlands. To order, go to www.historywm.com.